This Quadcast podcast is brought to you by the book Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. For too long, people of faith have focused more on pointing out where other religions get it wrong. But what if we decided to focus more on all the ways those other religions get it right? This path might end up leading us into deeper understanding, connection, friendship, and peace. This was the idea behind the book that Choir Publishing and Pathios decided to assemble, gathering voices from different religious backgrounds who have learned to listen to those outside their own faith traditions. We hope that the wisdom they share with us here allows you to become more open to the truth and beauty to be found outside your own faith community. Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree, from Choir Publishing and Pathios, available now on Amazon. Hello. This is Wendy Giles, and I always have a second cup with Keith. It's the best part of my day. Hello, and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles, and in this episode, I want to talk about something that might be a little controversial, but hey, that's what we're doing here, isn't it? <laughs> um, it would be it would be uh, no different than the other 39 or 40 episodes we've done uh, prior to this one, right? So um, this is a, I want to talk about two things, I think, in this episode. Um, I want to talk about taxes and tithing. So let's start with taxes. Um, this question of whether or not churches should pay taxes, and this is, maybe this is kind of an American problem or issue, because I think the church and most of the world, uh, I'm not, it's probably different for every country. And I don't, I'll be honest, I'm just going to say I'm ignorant. I don't know. Um, but I'm just, so I'm just speaking as an American, someone raised in the American church, someone who was on staff at American churches, licensed and ordained, served on staff at churches was, uh, for at least a portion of my life, I received, um, a large portion of my income, um, from the tithe that the church received. Um, and these churches didn't pay taxes, right? Churches being tax exempt. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit because it's just odd to me. Um, I just want to say, I, I found it strange the way Christians in America respond to this idea of churches, um, churches not paying taxes. So they act like taxes, tax exemptions are somehow a God-given right. I've heard people flat out say that, that it's a God-given right that churches shouldn't have to pay taxes. Um, or as if it's some concept that the Bible supports, like, like the Bible would supports this idea, you know, that, uh, that the Christian church shouldn't pay taxes to the government because that's not true at all. That's not at all what the Bible says. And in fact, um, there are two specific places where, uh, the exact opposite is taught in the, in the new Testament. So let's start with Jesus because that's, that should be our primary, uh, guide for what we as followers of Jesus, as Christians, um, are going to do. Like, what, what should we do? What should our behavior be, right? So in Matthew 17, verse 24 through 27, um, a group of tax collectors um, ask Peter um, if, if Jesus pays his taxes. And Peter answers, well, of course he does, which I think is interesting. His default answer is to say, of course he does. Um, but then the rest of the passage goes like this. Peter, when he gets home, um, goes, uh, walks in the, walks in the door. And before he can say anything, Jesus, uh, asks Peter, what do you think? 
From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others, the children of others? And Peter answers, oh, from others. And then Jesus says, then the children are exempt. Um, But then he says, but so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake, throw out your line, and take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. So just at face value, what happens is they ask Peter, does Jesus pay taxes? Peter says, of course he does. He and Jesus have a conversation immediately after this where Jesus says, um, go and pay your tax and mine. Now, in between there, Jesus gave a little bit of a, a lesson, asked a question, and then we're going to dive into that because there's something interesting in that exchange going on there of what Jesus is intending to get at by asking that question about, you know, um, who pays the tax? Does the, does the king tax his children or does the king tax everybody else? Are his children exempt? Right? So he's just making a point about that. We're going to get to that in a second. Um, well, no, actually, let's get to it. <laughs> let's go. Let's just go on and jump into it now because it's important. Um, why does Peter ask this question? Why does Jesus ask Peter this question? Right? I think it's meant to illustrate something that Jesus says in another place, which is, um, we don't belong to the empire. We belong to God. So in other words, since we are not the children of the king or the emperor or the empire, that means we're not exempt. So understand the basis by which Jesus is saying you should pay taxes. If you are the child of the empire, of the emperor, if you're in the family of the empire, then you should be exempt because the king's family doesn't pay taxes. He doesn't tax himself, right? He taxes everyone else. Um, and so Jesus takes this thing about paying taxes in an opposite way that most people take it. Most people would say, most Christians would say, oh, I don't want to pay my taxes because that means I'm entangled with them somehow. If I give them my taxes, um, I'm, I'm complicit in whatever the government does with that money. That's the way we think. Jesus thinks the opposite. Jesus thinks um, empires tax their subjects, right? So, okay, we're, we are, we can't help it. We live here, right? This is the country we live in. If we're living under an empire or an emperor and they tax us, we pay taxes. But Jesus says, think of it this way. By paying taxes, what you're saying is I'm not his kid. I'm not the child of that emperor. So it's the reverse. Paying the taxes is a statement that you are not complicit. You are not um, of the family of the emperor. You are a subject. You are uh, you are a citizen. I should probably say that. It's more like you're a citizen uh, of, of the, uh, the empire. Um, and as such, you would pay taxes. So the bottom line, though, in this passage is that Jesus paid taxes. And his disciples pay their taxes. And if we're not of the empire, we should pay them also, right? Um, another place where Jesus also addresses uh, taxes is in Matthew 22, um, verse 17. So notice now this is twice in the same gospel of Matthew. So first time in, in chapter 17, 
And then jump ahead to chapter 22. Here's another question about taxes. And now the Pharisees ask him a question. Tell us, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay tax? Uh, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So Jesus says, you know, you're trying to trap me. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius and he asked whose picture is on it. And they said, Caesar's. And he said, good, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. So again, again, he affirms, yes, pay your taxes. Again, because that money was minted under the empire. It belongs to the empire. He wants it, give it back to him, right? His picture's on it, give it back to him. The seal of the government or the empire is on that. That means that money belongs to him. Give it back to him. But you don't belong to them. And so again, I think Jesus is making a distinction between your money and you. If you are wanting to hold on to your money, then you are equating your money with something that you're grasping as if it is part of you. Jesus is saying, hey, let go of it. You don't, that money doesn't belong to you anyway. Give it away. If, if, if the government wants it, give it to them, right? Give it to them because it's theirs. That money doesn't have a hold on you. It's, a, it's just another way of saying what he says in the, in the first example, right? You're not part of the family of the emperor. So if they want, if they want to tax you, hey, that just proves that you're not a member of the family of the emperor. You're not, uh, you're not connected to uh, the empire or the ruler. Now, Paul also gives us um, a pretty strong uh, argument for paying our taxes. And it's pretty plain. So it's Romans 13. Oh boy, Christians don't, look, look, Christians love quoting Romans 13, but they don't like quoting this part of it. Uh, Romans 13, what they love is the part about, you know, how the state is the, uh, the servant of God. And, you know, as if, uh, what, what they use it for is, you know, they, to justify, um, joining the military to justify being part of, see, they like that. They just don't want to pay taxes, but they want, you know, oh yeah, but support the military, support the, support your government, support your leaders. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so, but, but, but this is the part of Romans 13 they don't like. Um, yeah. Where Paul says this, pay then what you owe them. That means the state, pay the state what you owe them, pay your personal and property taxes and show respect and honor for them all. So, um, did Jesus pay his taxes? Yes. Did the disciples pay their taxes? Yes, because Jesus told them to. Um, so if Jesus paid taxes, if his disciples paid taxes, if the Apostle Paul paid taxes and taught us to pay our taxes, personal taxes and property taxes, why is it American Christians completely have bought into this idea that they are exempt, that their church is exempt from paying taxes. Now, I get it. <clears throat> I know. Well, you know, this law was passed, and we're being obedient to the law, Keith, right? It's the law. Yeah, but understand why this—think of it this way. Why would the state want to exempt the churches? Isn't it kind of like what Jesus says? Because it—, it entangles the state with the church. Now there is something where there's something to that metaphor of, Hey, you're, you're almost like a child of this, of the state. 
you're a child of the state and the, and the, and the state treats you like one of its children because it exempts you because you're on the same team. Play ball with us. Again, it's the opposite of what most American Christians think. They think that by not paying taxes, that somehow sets them free. And Jesus says, no, by, by not paying taxes, it doesn't make you more free. It actually makes you more, um, uh, what's the word? It makes it so that you, you kind of, um, you know, you kind of, it's like a quid pro quo. Like, well, because the state gives you tax exemptions, um, you want to fall in line. It allows the state to kind of control what you, what you do. Right. Um, and that's the truth. So, um, American evangelicals, I'm just going to say this. I, I don't really think they care what Jesus thinks or what Jesus says because they don't turn to these two examples where Jesus flat out says, pay your taxes. They don't turn even to Paul, who's their, really their favorite. They really prefer Paul to Jesus. And then again, they, they love Romans 13. They just don't like that verse in Romans 13. That's not the Romans 13 they, they ever quote. Um, they just, you know, in this case, it doesn't matter to them. Um, they would rather hold on to their tax exemption at any cost, I think. And so, um, you know, if, if they did, let's put it this way, if, if American evangelical Christians and churches really cared about what Jesus said, um, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be acting as if the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount were woke. They wouldn't, um, they would, what they would do is care for the poor. They would take care of the poor in their community because Jesus told them to do that. Jesus modeled that. Um, and told them to take care of those that were poor among them. Um, they would also refuse to go to war. They refused to um, participate in the empire, whether that was being in the military or politics or anything, anything like that. They would willingly choose, as it says in the scriptures, to beat their weapons into garden tools, and they would refuse. Um, they would study war no more. They'd say, oh, I want nothing to do with violence and nothing to do with state-sponsored violence. Um, Specifically, joining the military, going to war, killing other people. Many of them are probably brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, so, you know, Christians who who think the idea of turning the other cheek is weak, um, or can't, you know, someone says, I, I can't respect anyone who, who uh, won't defend themselves uh, when they're being attacked. Well, you're saying, if you say that, you're saying you, you don't respect Jesus. Because that's exactly what Jesus did and what Jesus told us to do, to turn the other cheek. Um, we should be, if we're really following Jesus, right? Churches should be primarily caring for the poor in their community, the sick, the outcast, the immigrant, the refugee. Um, and they should be eager to, to avoid this entanglement with the, with the empire, with the state. And one of the primary ways they could, they could, uh, do that would be to pay their taxes because then they can do whatever they want, right? In other words, you understand that when you have a tax exemption, there are strings attached, right? The state tells you there are certain things you can't do, things you, you know, and so it, you got to follow that guideline or you lose that tax exemption. Um, but again, my, my, I've, I've talked about this many times in my book, um, Jesus Untangled, 
um, crucifying our politics the Pledge of Allegiance to the Lamb, and also in, in the final book, in the, the first and the last book in the Jesus Sun series. That was the first book in the Jesus Sun series. The final book in the Jesus Sun series was um, Jesus Unarmed, um, about nonviolence, right? So I talk about that in both of those books. Um, so uh, we we have just we have a church today that unfortunately is sliding, not even sliding. I'd say it's running headlong as quickly as it can into uh, Christian nationalism. Many Christians want a Christian theocracy, um, and so uh, as I said in Jesus Untangled in that book, um, many American Christians are more American than they are Christian. They believe that America is the greatest nation on earth. They believe America is a Christian nation. They believe God has blessed America more than any other nation. They believe that whatever God is going to do in the world, it will happen in America or nowhere else, uh, or at least it will happen by Americans or through American intervention of some kind, um, as if God needed America to accomplish God's plans for the world, right, for the future. Um, and whatever America does is what God wants. Uh, again, I've, I've seen a very disturbing trend of Christians who, um, who are like the U.S. Constitution carries more weight than anything that Jesus or the Apostle Paul has to say. I, I know Christians, I've known them for years, who literally carry around with them in their pocket a copy of the Constitution. They do not carry around in their pocket the Sermon on the Mount. I just think that's a problem. Uh, I think when you do that kind of thing, when you're literally walking around with a flag pen and a flag hat and a flag decal on your car and and you're carrying around the U.S. Constitution, a copy of the U.S. Constitution folded up in a little booklet in your in your front pocket or in your, in your back pocket, um, you are identifying more as an American. You you hold the U.S. Constitution as a as a sacred document higher than the words of Jesus. And um, sorry, I'm <laughs> sorry to say these things, but um, this is kind of my opinion. So, well, it's not kind of my opinion. It is my opinion. Um, so it, I get it. It's kind of counterintuitive, right? Um, on one hand, you think, well, if American Christians are so American, then why not show their support for America by paying taxes? Uh, but it, but again, as Jesus says, those that um, those that are exempt are the true children of the empire. Um, now, the, here's the other thing, though, and this gets us into sort of the tithing situation. And this is just a little bit. I did a little bit of research on this. Um, I, there's way more, um, but I just want to do a little bit of research to kind of give you guys some quotes on some of these things. According to really kind of dozens of online sources, uh, Christian churches in the United States earn around, that means churches in America take in total we're talking every Christian denomination uh, in America, just in America. They take in $74.5 billion every year. Now imagine if churches in America paid taxes to the U.S. government on $74.5 billion every year. Wow. Uh, that's where we would get money to take care of the homeless. That's where we get money. Um, to have a mental health uh, safety net in our country that would cure a homeless problem. Um, that's where you get money for um, free education up, up through college, 
if, if we wanted to. Uh, better healthcare system. That's where you get that money just by taxing the churches. Um, another uh, stat that I found, it says the average congregation. So again, listen to me. This is the average. So if, if, if your church is not, is lower than this, that doesn't prove anything. This is the taking all of the churches together who are all together earning $74.5 billion every year and finding out on average what what the, what is the average sort of uh, annual income of those churches, right? Some are more, some are way more, some are less. Um, the average congregation has an annual income of $242,000. So now again, imagine if we tax those Christian churches. That would be a huge, huge economic impact on our communities. Um, is now listen, this is my other problem with tithing. Um, when you consider that most churches spend their money, and I know this because I've been on staff at many churches, I've seen the budgets for at least four different churches in my life. Um, I have seen the operating budgets. I've seen the income. I've seen the outcome, uh, what they spent, right? What they invested, what they value. And what I've seen is that, um, and again, research backs this up. Most churches spend the majority of their money on overhead, pastor salaries, uh, facilities, utilities, um, things like that. Very little, very, if any, and I want really, I want to stress this very little, if any of the annual budget or the monthly budget, um, goes to caring for people in their community, you know, providing food for even people in their own church who can't pay their bills or, you know, need, need assistance, single moms need help. Um, very little of that money goes back into helping their own people, much less people outside of the church, so like the homeless community or, or just food banks or things like that. Um, now, some churches do, and they do a great job on that. And I actually am, I actually served at a church that had a high value for that, and that was unusual, and that was really beautiful. But again, I'm just talking the majority. I'm talking averages here. Um, so again, you have very few Christian churches spend even a third of their budget on caring for the actual people in their community who need help with food insecurity or income inequality or after-school programs or job assistance or training or any of that. So um, again, um, a friend of mine a few years ago had this, I thought was a great idea, um, which was that, you know, uh, he wanted he wanted to pass legislation about church, specifically church tax exemption status to say that if a church could not demonstrate that a, a large portion, a large percentage of the money that it took in was going to actually help people in the actual community that surrounded the church, that they should forfeit their tax exempt status. Because they're really not a tax, in what way are they a tax exempt you know, organization? How, how are they bettering their community other than preaching their message, sharing their theology, their particular brand of theology to people, which initially, essentially just gets people to come to their Sunday service, their, their, their sermon and a song and, a, you know, their rock concert and a TED talk. Um, like, how is that? Why would that be something that the, that the government would say, this is valuable, let's not tax them, they're doing good in the community? What good? Like if you can't demonstrate you're doing actual good in the community, then you shouldn't actually 
continue to receive this tax break, this tax incentive. Um, so yeah, I, I think they should have to prove that they're doing tangible good to the actual people in the community that surrounds that church. Um, so yeah, Christian churches in America almost have $75 billion in revenue. Um, and you know, look, I understand not every church is, you know, spending that on private jets or building multi-million dollar worship centers or things like that. But, but in general though, what they are doing is taking that money and using it to enrich themselves. Um, whether they're enriching the organization itself so the so that the organization can perpetually stay in business, stay active, right? Keep the lights on, keep the doors open, you know, continue to have services. Like in other words, it's just, it's money that's keeping it itself alive. And, and most of the time that is maybe all it's doing. It exists to perpetuate itself. It doesn't exist for the good of the people around them, which is what Jesus stood for. It's what Jesus called us to be about. Um, and just full disclosure, like, you know, I haven't worked for a church myself in, wow, 20 years, maybe easily. Yes, easily more than 20 years. Um, and, um, and I don't even, I know, I, I don't even really attend a church where it, there is any money being collected or anything like that. So, um, that's not something I've really participated in anymore. But anyway, uh, as far as it goes, I'm on this point. My American Christians, I think, if they cared what Jesus said, if they cared what the Apostle Paul said, if they really loved Romans 13, then they would pay their taxes. So, um, and then uh, the last thing on um, tithing, and I don't think I've covered this before, Um this whole idea of tithing, by the way, is not a New Testament concept. Big shock, by the way. No. Um, I think the, 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 if you study church history, um, first of all, the New Testament scriptures say nothing about tithing. Okay. Um, to hear Paul and the other apostles speak and a lot of the early church fathers talk, um, that, that the Old Testament commands for tithing applied to the priests and the temple and uh, like the, 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 what is it? The 13th tribe or whatever, um, which was the tribe of Aaron or, or the Levites, the, the priests, um, because they didn't work the land. They didn't have, you know, livestock or something like that. They were fully devoted. They were the, they were the, uh, the tribe, the Jewish tribe that was devoted to uh, the worship, the, the priesthood, right? And because of that, the other tribes, their brothers and sisters and the other tribes, uh, the tithe was paid to provide them with an income and security, right? That's the whole point of the tithe. Well, according to the New Testament, you and I are the priesthood. We're the priesthood and we're the temple. We're, we are the temple of God now. So the only priesthood is us. The only temple is us. So who are we giving our money to? Well, uh, again, the New Testament never taught the tithe. That was considered as something that was fulfilled, that, that Christ fulfilled. Um, so if you look at church history, the church did not formally institute the tithe until 777 AD under Charlemagne, the rule of Charlemagne. So think about that. For over 770 years, 
no one was told to tithe. No one taught tithing as as an imperative for a Christian. So that tithe, uh, the command to tithe was given only to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Again, it was intended to provide for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem or the tabernacle before that, uh, to support the priesthood who didn't own land, couldn't have, didn't, didn't own livestock, had no way to support themselves. Um, but again, the temple in Jerusalem is gone. There is no temple in Jerusalem anymore. We're not Jews anyway. So even if there was one, we wouldn't give money to that temple because we're not, we're not Jewish. Um, so there's no need to financially support a priesthood because we are the priesthood. There's something called the priesthood of all believers. That's us. We are the priesthood. We are the new priesthood and we are the new temple. Um, and I've talked about this before. The old covenant, which is what where this whole command to tithe comes from, is obsolete according to Hebrews 8.13. So there's no need to keep any of those laws anymore um, because you're the temple of God. If you if you want to be if you want to be really really uh, accurate, then if you want to obey the command to take ten percent of your income and give it to the priesthood, give it to yourself. Treat yourself. Go out to dinner. Buy yourself something nice. If you want to give ten percent of your income uh, to support the temple of God and the upkeep of the temple, join you know use that ten percent to get a gym membership or some exercise equipment or something, because you're the temple. You're the priesthood, okay? Um, yeah. The uh, the new covenant, by the way, um, when the new covenant talks about offerings, it doesn't talk about ten percent. Um, the New Testament actually talks about a hundred percent because God owns everything. We're commanded to surrender. We're commanded, as as we said in this, we we just read. Jesus talks about. Um, giving to God what is God's. Well, what is God's? Everything. It's not 10%. It's everything, right? We're commanded to surrender our, our entire life to Christ, not 10%. It's 100%. Um, and what we do see in the New Testament are there are times when there are free will offerings. In other words, hey, there's a need. Either this church is in need. Paul collected money for churches that were in poverty um, to help them. Um, but again, that was buying food for people that wasn't, there was no building, there was no temple, uh, there was no church building, there were no salaries, no one, no one made any money from, you know, teaching the scriptures to somebody or performing their functions as we see in first Corinthians 12. Um, no one got paid for those things. We did them, people did them because of love, because of Christ, because they had been gifted by Christ, by the spirit of God to minister, to help, to bless to encourage, you know, one another using these spiritual gifts that were also given by the Spirit. Um, and those things were given freely. So what we see are free will offerings. When, when there, there's any discussion about that, it's like, you know, the money was laid at the feet of the apostles and distributed to the people, the widow, the orphan, right? Not to the apostles. Um, I love looking at second century writings from Tertullian on this whole question of uh, how they handled it. Because again, in the second century, no one was tithing, no one commanded a tithe, but here's what they did say. Uh, this is a quote from Tertullian. Uh, pay attention. This is great. I, I, I would be so happy if we would adopt this policy right here, because this is a great policy. So here's what Tertullian says. Even if there is a treasury of a sort, it is not made up of money paid in initiation fees as if religion were a matter of contract. 
every man once a month brings some modest contribution or whatever he wishes, and only if he does wish and if he can, for no one is compelled. It is a voluntary offering to, to do what? To feed the poor and to bury them for boys and girls who lack property and parents, and then for slaves grown old. So we, who are united in mind and soul, have no hesitation about sharing property. All is common among us, except our wives. At that point, we dissolve our partnership. I like the little joke he puts in at the end there. Um, He had a sense of humor. He had horrible views on women, by the way, just so you know. but on this matter, on this, it's it's a beautiful window. It's a beautiful snapshot from Tertullian about this is what early uh, Christian gatherings. Uh, this is how they handled the whole question of money. It's what they did with their money, uh, and how they uh, how they thought about the money. Right. So again, look at this. Once a month, you can bring a modest contribution or whatever you wish. If you want to give more than that. Go for it, but that's your choice. No one's compelling you. No one's commanding you. Uh, And only, and again, I love this, and only if he does wish, which means if he doesn't wish, he doesn't have to. And then he says, and if he can, which means if you can't afford it, you better not be taking money that you need to buy food for your kids or pay your rent or whatever else, right? Money that you need for your family, you better not be giving that to the church. You give it only if you can. And again, he emphasizes, for no one is compelled. It is a voluntary offering. So that's, I don't think he could be more emphatic there. But then again, look at what they spent their money on. What did the church do with the money once they did collect it? Was that used to buy new camels for the apostles or whatever? No. Was that used to buy bigger you know, huts for bigger houses for them, bigger dwellings for them. No, it was, it was not to enrich the people, their brothers and sisters who were equal to them, right? There was no hierarchy in, in this early church system. That came a little bit later. Um, but early on, we didn't have that. Um, everybody did what they did out of love for one another in the community of Christ. So Tertullian tells us, well, here's what they did with when they did receive the offerings, which again were freely given. Um, and people gave what they wanted, when they wanted, and only if they could give, and and not and nothing if they didn't. So what did they do, though, when they did collect the money once a month? They took the money and they used it to feed the poor, to bury people who had died, uh, and for children who had no parents, so orphans, right? And for the slaves among them that were too old to work. So there you go. That's that's what it was all about. And if you're curious about this, if you want to look into this even more, there's an excellent book by Justo Gonzalez. Justo is J-U-S-T-O. Justo Gonzalez. Excellent um, scholar and uh, historian, church historian. He also has a really great book called The History of uh, Christianity. I think it's there's two. it's a two-volume set. Um, volume one is my favorite because it deals with the church up until Constantine which was the golden age, <laughs> in my opinion. We was before everything kind of fell apart. Um, 
anyway, he's a book called Faith and Wealth that goes much deeper into this question of what the early church did with their money, how they thought about money, how they, uh, you know, what it was all about. So that if you're really curious about that, that's a great, great study. Um, one thing that he points out in that book that really jumped out at me, um, again, was sort of the radical way that early Christians uh, responded to people around them who were living in poverty. Now, again, the majority of the church was in poverty. Uh, if we if we think about it, you know, early on, probably a small handful of people, um, you know, maybe let's just say percentage-wise, 5 to 10% of the people who were part of the movement um, were wealthy. They owned property. They had money. They had extra money. Um, and, you know, the other 90%, um, 95% were poor. They were slaves. Uh, they were, or they were living in poverty themselves, right? They were barely making it, barely, barely able to provide by fishing or, you know, making crafts that they sold in the marketplace or something like that. Or they were slaves, right? So they were just working for somebody else and getting a, a wage that took care of them and, and their and their children. Um, so keep that in mind. But the way they would respond to that would would be very different from the way we would respond. So when we when we you know, like Christians today think about like how should the church respond to people in poverty, we think if we're going to do anything at all. Um, we should, you know, give them more money, but usually not. Usually we, we don't like just handing them money. We think of it in terms of like, well, let's help them get a job. You know, if they don't have a job, we're going to get them a job. If they do have a job, we're going to get them a better job. In other words, we want to raise them up economically from the from a level of poverty so that they have a good job, they have good income, they have good banking skills, financing skills, budgeting skills. So essentially, they look more like us. They look more like middle class, upper class people, right? That's our solution. We say the solution to the problem is let's help the people who are in poverty. Let's raise them up to the level of middle class so they're they're more like us, okay? That's how we respond. But what Justo Gonzalez pointed out was looking at the way the early church responded to people in poverty was the opposite. Instead of saying to the poor, you need to become more like us, you need to become entrepreneurs, you need to own, buy property, you need you know, to get more job skills. No, the people who were rich, the people who had property, people who had money, they sold the property, they, they distributed the money, they gave it away. So what did that, what did that do to the, the people who were at the upper class or middle class level financially? It brought them down to the poverty level. So the, those people... Um, those people move towards poverty. They didn't try to pull people in poverty up towards themselves, up to the higher level, right? And you can debate whether one is better than the other, but I do think it's worth just stopping for a minute and considering why was that their solution? Why was it that they would consider that? Because I'll be honest, I, I would never consider it. Like that's, I wouldn't even pop into my mind. I would never think, here are these poor people and the first thing in my mind would be the best way to help them would be to get rid of all my extra stuff. Let me sell all my stuff and I'll move in next to them, you know, in the homeless encampment. Um, I'm like, well, whoa. So why did they think of that? And, and really, I think a deeper question is why wouldn't I think of that? 
because the early church had a much different view of poverty and wealth than we do. And it's actually all through the New Testament, New Testament writings, especially James. Um, but even in Acts, you see it in the writings of Paul as well. There is a, there is a, it's a really upside down. You were talking about the upside down kingdom of God. It's a very upside down, at least compared to our model, our way, our philosophy and way of thinking. Um, it's very upside down. Um, they treated, and many of the early church fathers we see in their writings, they treated wealth almost as a curse. And the fact that you had wealth proved that you, the money that you were holding belonged to the poor. And many early, early church fathers said exactly that, that if you had um, two robes, one of them, it's that you, you don't have two robes, you have one, and then you've stolen the extra one, and it belongs to someone right now who doesn't have one. And you need to find that person and give it to them. If you have, you know, uh, if you have more bread than you need to eat, then you have robbed it from the from the poor. You've robbed it from the hungry. And you need to go find those people who are hungry and give it to them. Because you already have enough. You have more than enough for yourself. And so the any extra you have belongs to the poor. That is just the way they thought. Uh, that's the way they preached. That was, if you went to a church and you heard someone stand up and, and give a message or, or, or a word of encouragement, uh, that's what it would be. That's a, that's certainly what it would be. Um, that if you had money and you had wealth, uh, you were obligated. Uh, and again, they didn't command it, but I mean, that, that was the, the mindset. That was the philosophy. Um, God gave you, if God gave you extra, it was to test you, to see if you were generous, to see if you loved money or if you loved Christ, right? Jesus has these teachings, right, about um, we either love God or we love money. And you can't love both. You can't have two masters. And the early church took this man and they ran with it. They really, really bought into this. Um, and, you know, we live in a, if we live in America, you live in basically the richest nation on the face of the earth. Um, we are very, most of us are very, very privileged. Even, even those of us financially in America who struggle financially, if you compared our situation, our condition to the poor in another country, like a third world country, you're still rich because you still have access to and have, um, you know, programs and systems and privileges that people, you know, don't have in third world countries. Not to say that, you know, poverty is poverty. It, it sucks no matter where you live. Um, but just in general in America, even our poor are better off than, uh, would be considered, you know, their lifestyle would be considered being rich in another country. So uh, we are a little spoiled in that sense. And that's, I think that's why it's hard for us to even imagine the idea that our response to someone in poverty would be, um, to give up what we own so that we could join them in their poverty. Uh, but again, early, early Christians would have seen that as uh, an act of faith, that I trust God will take care of me. Uh, I'm not going to trust in my money. I'm not going to trust in my riches. I'm going to trust in God. And um, so I have this extra. I'm going to share it. If it runs out, then God will bring something for, to us later, right? And you know, um, like I know, again, I've heard uh, a lot of Bible teachers and pastors, you know, talk about 
this ideal community that we see in the book of Acts, right? That, uh, which did practice exactly what I'm talking about, right? If anyone had a need among them, they sold their property and shared it among them. And there was no, there was no one had any need among them, right? But then if you fast forward, as I mentioned later on, um, the church in Jerusalem is in trouble financially. And that's why Paul is going out to these other churches and writing letters to these other churches outside of Jerusalem and asking them for charity, asking them for, you know, could you, could you, let's take a collection and bring it to the church, to your brothers and sisters, right? As the church is expanding outward from Jerusalem, now there's a need, you know, in the original church in Jerusalem. Um, out of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, um, let's take an offering and, and care for them. And again, a lot of people, a lot of Christians uh, I've heard, a lot of pastors I've heard, will talk about that as a failure. They're saying that, well, see, that system failed because you know, in a couple of years, the church in Jerusalem, all the money was gone. Everybody did become poor. Every all the rich did sell their property, and then now everybody's poor. And now what? Well, now what was that as the church expanded that they expected that the love of Christ would also expand. The heart of Christ would also expand. And then those on the outside would now give to those on the inside. Um, and I think that actually was success that as the church, if the church continued to do that, then as the gospel spread, um, the love of Christ would also spread and the love of Christ would, would, uh, continue to be um, expressed in generosity. So actually, there would be no end to it. Uh, the, well, the, I guess the ultimate end would be if everyone in the world eventually did become a Christian and did have this compassionate love of Christ for one another, they would all share everything in common. Uh, I guess it would be sort of like a socialist um, you know, utopia or something, that everybody would share everything in common everywhere because everybody was filled with the love of Christ for everyone else everywhere and didn't consider that anyone anywhere didn't deserve the same food, shelter, or clothing that everyone else had um, and would do whatever they had to do, would share everything they had in common, would, would give generously to make sure that everyone everywhere had everything they needed. And at least in theory, that still works. You know, There is enough money in the world for everybody to have enough. There is enough food in the world for everybody to have enough. Uh, there is enough of everything in the world for everyone to have enough. The problem, the reason why we have problems with homelessness and poverty and things like that is not because there's not enough to go around. It's not because we can't satisfy the needs of the poor. It's that we can't satisfy the needs of the rich. The rich are the ones who just keep wanting and holding and amassing and getting more and more and more and more, millions and millions and millions, hundreds of millions, billions, hundreds of billions. And they are, a few people are holding all of the wealth while the rest of us are suffering. And again, if if because of Christ, if because of love, there was a transformation of the heart that then resulted in uh, a freedom of sharing a, a wave of generosity, um, again, not imposed by the state, not some socialist government, we're talking about the natural outcome of the transformation of the spirit uh, in compassionate, generous love for everyone everywhere. Um there, that's how we, that would be achieved. So I don't see it as a failure that, you know, the church in Jerusalem had this beautiful community. And then a few years later, there had to be a collection from the, the churches that had spread out from Jerusalem to give a generosity to those people. Because what would have happened later is the church continued to expand 
then those churches on that, you know, uh, the, the churches that it had given to Jerusalem, when they reached a level of poverty, then the churches that had spread beyond them would give to them and the one in Jerusalem, right? And it would continue to expand and it would continue to be generous. Um, not to enrich anyone, uh, not again, not to make a handful of people in the church rich, but to make sure everyone in the church, uh, in the family of God, had enough. And I think that's that's a great plan. Fortunately, we've we've abandoned that plan. I, so I guess anyway, going back to our thing about tithing, um, no Christian today should ever. We're not. We, you're not expected to follow this old covenant mandate to tithe. Don't listen to any pastor who whips out, you know, some verse from Malachi or something and and tells you that according to the Bible, God wants your 10%. And if you want to be real about it, if you're like, oh, no, I want to do what the Bible says, well, then pay your taxes. And when it comes to tithing, um, hey, God owns 100%, not 10%. Right? Anyway, I think that's uh, that's definitely enough to chew on for this episode. I'm probably, I, I kind of expect... Here's the, what I've noticed. When you preach on, there's certain topics that when you talk about them, um, people are really sensitive and you strike a nerve. Money is one of them. So uh, I, I expect some people are not going to be happy with this episode. I apologize um, if that's you. Uh, but I'm just I'm just trying to be factual. Like this is what the scriptures say. Um, Christians sh- should pay their taxes. Churches, I believe, should pay their taxes. Uh, I think paying, I think churches paying their taxes, as Jesus said, is proof that they are not, um, they are not under the rule and reign and authority of the state because they're not a child of the state. They're a subject, they're a citizen, pay your taxes just like everybody else, just like Jesus did, just like Peter did, just like Paul did, just like Tertullian did, um, just like all the early church fathers did, the church did for 777 years. Um, pay your taxes and don't tithe. <laughs> you don't, uh, and again, I, I say don't tithe to the church. Um, then this sort of like the rule of the 10%. Um, and I guess I should address that before I close because, because I hear people saying, well, I, I, I can hear the question. Um, Keith, how are churches supposed to exist if we don't tithe? right? We got to pay the pastor. We got to pay for the building. Like, well, again, I'm, I'm one of these radical weirdos who uh, did house church for 11 years. Um, I guess maybe 12 or 13 years. And, um, and we didn't, we collected offerings, but a hundred percent of those offerings went to care for the poor in our community. So um, I didn't receive financial compensation from our house church community. So fellowships of Christians can exist. Churches can exist without there being a need for, you know, uh, paying for this salary, paying for a building and all that stuff. Uh, at least some people in your church probably have a house or an apartment that they're renting, or maybe they own a house and you can break up into groups and meet in them. And so many churches actually already do small groups. So just continue to do that. Um, I feel like that's one of the problems with church is that it's it has turned into a business. It has become a franchise. It's more about, um, again, it's become an organization that exists to perpetuate itself. Um, and again, unless they're doing great work in the community, um, I don't think they should be tax exempt. And I don't think uh, you should be giving your money to them. Now, if you have a church nearby, uh, 
that or a church that you're a part of, and they are doing incredible work in the community. They're they're doing awesome stuff, and you know that you that you can see is having an impact, a positive impact on the the, the people around you, or the, or just communities in need in general in your community. Um, absolutely, and of course, listen, don't do anything because I said so. You could you don't have to agree with me at all. You don't have to do anything. Please don't do anything because I said so. I'm just telling you my view. I'm just telling you my perspective. Um, your mileage may vary, and if it does, totally fine with that. It's totally okay. Uh, I'm just telling you where my convictions are, where I'm at with things. Um, I think uh, when our little house church uh, gave away all of our money, and we didn't have a 501c3, we weren't tax exempt, we didn't have a bank account, um, we didn't pay, we didn't use the money for even buying donuts and coffee or anything, right? Uh, and, and no one took a salary. All the offering was given away to people in need in our community. That was beautiful because when we took money out of the equation and when we took uh, hierarchy and control out of the equation uh, and when we took shame and fear and guilt out of the equation, suddenly church was the most beautiful thing I have ever been a part of. It was simply about family, about loving one another, about uh, following Christ in our actual life and in our community, um, a church that existed for the good of others, not for itself. That's possible. I did it. We did it for... 12, 13 years. Uh, it can be done. And if you want to know how to do it, I'm happy to help you. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give you all the free resources you need and coaching and everything you want. Um, if you want to do something like that, it's totally doable, totally possible. Um, and in my experience, I say, I always say it was the best thing I've ever done with the word church on it. It was amazing. Anyway, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to Second Cup with Keith. I want to do a quick commercial. Um, my son, David, wrote a novel. It's really great. And I'm not saying that just because he's my son. Um, I'm saying it because it is really great because um, several other authors have read it and said the same thing. Uh, his, his, he had a reading, uh, like a team that read the book before it came out, got incredible reader reviews from them. Um, it's a great book. It's called There Once Were Orange Groves. It's on Amazon right now. Uh, if you want a great novel that'll make you think, make you weep, make you cry, make you laugh, uh, it's a really great story. Uh, Go check it out. There once were orange groves by my son, David Giles. And then choir also just recently put out a book called um, sitting in the shade of another tree. This is in partnership with Pathios. Um, this is a collection of uh, different, different, every chapter is written by a different person from a different faith and talking about what they love about a, a faith. That's not their own, what other religions get right. So we're not talking about what they get wrong. We're talking about what they get right. And, uh, it's beautiful. It's it's amazing. So we have contributors who are Jewish, Muslim, Baha'i, uh, Hindu, uh, neo-pagan, Wiccan, Taoist, Buddhist, Sufi, um, talking about, yes, Christian <laughs> uh, as well. Um, and what they have, something that they've learned from a different faith system that enriches their own faith system. It's such a great book. It's so beautiful. I'm so proud of it. It's called Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. It's currently number one on Amazon. Uh, it's available on Kindle and paperback. Great, great book. Go check it out. Um, I think it will open your mind, open your heart um, to learning how to listen to people who aren't just like you and taking away the truth and the wisdom that that they have to share with us. And it's profound. It's significant. So go check that out. Anyway, uh, again, thanks so much for listening to Second Cup with Keith. We'll see you next time. Uh, you guys have a great, uh, great day, a great week, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Take care.